Well, uh, good morning to all of you. Um, it's great to be here. Rita and I are glad for uh, the fact that we have the opportunity to be here with you and to enjoy your company as we together uh, lift up praise to God and as we consider God's word this morning. Um, when uh, Pastor Wes acknowledged that uh, the commandment that he'd invite, invited me to preach on today uh, in your series on the Ten Commandments uh, was do not commit adultery, he kind of confessed that this was going to be a tough sermon. That wasn't quite the words that he used, but I got the sense that he was saying it's not an easy passage. And yet, I think it is a good passage. And it's as uneasy as any passage in the scripture that speaks to our hearts and lives and encourages us to open our hearts and our lives to hear what God has to say to us, even from the hardest of passages, as well as those that minister good news, that there is hope, that there is blessing and that there is refreshment and power in the Holy Spirit of God. So, I'm undaunted, even though this is the passage that I've been given. Um, I want to actually invite you to turn, not to the Old Testament portion, but actually to where it's quoted in the New Testament. So, if you can turn uh, to Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to be beginning with verses 17 through 20. And that kind of sets stage for us. It kind of helps to uh, orientate ourselves to the teaching of Jesus, which actually gathers up this Old Testament passage from Exodus and moves it forward into the presence of his ministry, and the opportunity that he has to speak to God's people and to speak forward into the circumstances and the needs and uh, the requirements that God has for us here today. Jesus says at a certain point in the sermon, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The words of our Lord Jesus. May they be a blessing to our hearts and our lives. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches that the followers of Jesus who wish to inherit the kingdom must be the possessors of surpassing 
righteousness. This reminds me of uh, uh, Luke's uh, uh, passage in Acts where he's describing Paul's ministry and the kinds of miracles that were taking place in Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And he says there were miracles, not the usual kind. And we're in that sort of situation where we're saying, isn't a miracle, an, it's a miracle, it's, it's a miracle. What about this miracles, not the usual kind? I never knew that there were regular ones and then miracle miracles. Well, this is righteousness and surpassing righteousness. This is a righteousness that actually leaps forward beyond what might be considered in normal circumstances, the righteousness that pleases God. Verse 20 says, in particular, that our righteousness will need to be not just as good as that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but better by far than theirs. Surpassingly so. This morning we're going to consider what surpassing righteousness looks like in the area of marriage. How can we be not just faithful to our marriage partners, but surpassingly faithful? And what I'm going to do is ask you now to look a few more verses ahead, and I'm going to read uh, the second uh, portion of the law that Jesus addresses, which carries the verse that we're interested in this morning. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Surpassing righteousness. If it's hard to hear the Old Testament passage by itself, what is it to hear in the preaching and the teaching of Jesus, if not a call to surpassing righteousness? You know, we live in a, an age of unfaithfulness. One of my revered Northwest professors, Dr. Don Carson, wrote this. Um, Our society has moved a long way from the explicit prohibition of this passage. Many modern thinkers would affirm the legitimacy of adultery if there is love. Even Christianity itself is invoked to sanctify this viewpoint. After all, it is argued, isn't love what the gospel is all about? Our generation treats sin lightly. Sin in our society is better thought of as aberration or an illness 
it is to be treated, not condemned and repeat, uh, repented of. And it must not be suppressed for fear of psychological damage. Now that was written some years ago. We've moved on apace. And the world is even more like this and extending than ever before. It takes a believer's breath away. It raises very great questions. Increasingly, adultery is being blamed for the high divorce rate. According to a number of self-described infidelity experts, adultery is on the rise, although it said statistics in this area are notoriously unreliable. There are new kinds of it. Internet infidelity, workplace infidelity, even emotional infidelity, the kind that doesn't even require sex. By the way, parental advisory, I will be using that word rather often in this sermon. And more folks who practice it. According to the experts, married women are now committing it in droves. There we are. What does righteousness call for? What is, is it hungry to realize? Well, righteousness, if we look at the Old Testament passage, rejects adulterous acts. Jesus is very clear in what God's word says about being faithful in our, uh, in our marriage relationships with our marriage partner. He begins his teaching by saying, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Well, that's from Exodus 20 and verse 14. The commandment, along with the rest of the law, was first given at Mount Sinai. It was given to Israel after God delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. God wanted his people to be holy because he was holy and to um, show him an undivided, exclusive love and loyalty as they anticipated entering the promised land which he had promised and which he was leading them to. Even before the tablets were brought down from Mount Sinai, however, Israel had failed. They committed adultery. They were involved in promiscuity. Probably other things as well, but those two. God was displeased with them. Later, Israel refused to enter the promised land and were sent into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years. The commandment was repeated at Leviticus 20 and verse 10 with a warning that those who violated it would be put to death. It was part of the renewal of the covenant after 40 years of wandering um, uh, before they entered the promised land that it was repeated again and renewed in Deuteronomy. The people's holiness did not rise to the holiness of God, however and trouble attended them every step of the way. They were not the people of God that they ought to have been, and their practices showed it. Yet God's plan, and all the way through and extensively in all of the laws of which this one is a part, from the very beginning, was that one man 
should come together with one woman and stay together for as long as God blessed them with life together. It has not changed. It is still God's good pleasure. The law stands. There are obvious reasons why it is wrong for a man or a woman to violate their sacred marriage vows by sexual sin. Adultery destroys friendships and marriages and families. It deeply disturbs children's lives by causing them to experience an unbalanced upbringing and great uncertainty. It ruins the financial strength of households and it impoverishes everyone. But most of all, it is a violation of God's required order and his expectation for how men and women should live. Adultery essentially is sin and it alienates people from God. A follower of Jesus will want to guard his or her outer life to never find themselves in the arms of someone who is not their spouse. While that is righteousness, Jesus says it's not enough. He says, I want you to have surpassing righteousness in this area of your lives. Surpassing righteousness is all about not rejecting only the actions, but rejecting as well adulterous character. That moves us to verse 28 of uh, Matthew 5. Look at what Jesus says there. Now you've heard these things, he says, from the Old Testament, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus is saying impure sexual thoughts about others, even if we keep them entirely to ourselves in the secrecy of our own mind, our own thoughts, are seeds that bear sinful expression. They're filled with potential to damage and destroy. And the seed is just as damaging and dangerous as the full-grown plant. Surpassing righteousness is not only about our sexual behaviors, it's also about our thoughts and our imagination. It's about who we are and not just what we do or what we don't do. Jesus talks about looking at someone lustfully. He is describing the situation where a person actively imagines another person who is not their partner as an object of satisfaction of a sexual kind. This is not an inadvertent thing. It's not about an accidental glance. It's a purposeful hunting, searching kind of mental activity. Jesus is talking about a fantasy for what is off limits to your relationship and mine. 
Because this is a sin of the imagination, there are ever so many ways that we can fall. It can occur through watching X-rated movies, reading certain kinds of magazines, occupying one's time, making telephone calls to certain numbers. It can be indulged on the TV and by means of the internet. What is common to all of this is that it is all emotional adultery. And it is every bit as sinful and dangerous to our marriage, yours and mine, and to your and my spiritual health and life, as much so as the physical act. One of my ministry colleagues some years ago put this down in writing. He wrote, we can be tempted to believe that our thought life is our own, since it is hidden from those around us. As long as our behavior and even our words are okay, we think that we can indulge in whatever thoughts we please. This kind of thinking leads us to the temptation to hope that righteousness is about obeying a certain set of rules, bringing our lives physically into conformity. But don't mess with my thinking. We should be righteous because we do what is required. But we want to save some space. We want to keep some personal room for us to live in our own little indulgences. This is what Jesus is battling in this teaching that he is giving on the, uh, on the mount. We are not truly righteous toward another person if in our thoughts we view them as an object, even if our treatment of them seems okay superficially. We are merely hypocrites he says. One way on the outside and another way entirely on the inside. With this, he finishes, there is no integrity and no purity. So what's the positive priority? What should we be doing? What can render this a better thing? If our minds matter as much as what our bodies do, we need an answer. We need help. And Jesus gives it at the first part of verse 29 and the first part of verse 30. What is the positive priority? What does uh, surpassing righteousness look like? Well, Jesus doesn't want us to make a serious mistake. We may at first mistake it for self-harm as we read this passage. It's all about gouging and cutting, which makes me rather squeamish. Uh, it's shocking. Um, it's violently intense. But it's not self-harm. It's actually self-protection. And that's what he's recommending here. 
He puts it this way at verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. The image, as I said, is a violent one. But it gets the priority across rather forcefully. And I think quite clearly. He is saying something like, I'm telling you something critically important. Lean into what I say. Work it out. And do so with energy and with a sense of the opportunity of the kingdom. We've got to love God and love being righteous for Him more than holding on to old thought patterns, old indulgences, and old secrets. The old inner things are not the comfortable luxury that we think they are. They're not harmless things that are disconnected from our, quote, real lives. In fact, they are the enemies of our most real life in God through Christ. And they are a threat on the eternal life into which he has invited us. Our thoughts may seem a harmless indulgence, as familiar, as comfortable as your right eye. But we are told to gouge such looking and such thinking out of us and to throw it away. Jesus is saying, be serious. Be deadly serious. Be intense in your response. Don't be lackadaisical. Our tendencies may be to be flirtatious in our activity and our conversation and in ways that may seem harmless enough. We're not actually doing anything. It's just about being a man or being a woman in the company of others. It's a part of our natural strength, we might argue. Jesus says, no. Like a powerful right arm, cut it off and throw it away. Your life depends on it. What does self-protection, vigorous self-protection look like? Well, first, it's not about physically cutting body parts off or out of ourselves. Again, my old professor reminds me a one-eyed or one-armed person can still have a sinful imagination and fall. Jesus is using the illustration in another way. I mentioned earlier some of the ways that a person can fall. Gouging and cutting calls for you and I to be severe about participation and even the possibility of participation in sexual unfaithfulness. Gouging and cutting means making wise choices in all of our entertainments. It means, first of all, not having sex with someone who is not your spouse, but it also means not sexually staring at someone of the opposite sex. That can happen in church, as well as maybe the gymnasium or the swimming pool. It means placing the TV 
and the computer in more open places and putting rigid and even physical controls on, not just for the kids, but for yourself. It means treating your whole life as unashamedly public instead of constructing and trying to cherish a part of it that's secret to yourself to indulge wrong fantasies. Jesus is calling for you and for me to take drastic action in getting rid of whatever in the natural course of events will actually jeopardize your real life and my real life in relationship to God who loves us dearly and wants us to make it to the kingdom. I'm sure that a good number of you have actually heard about a fellow named Aaron Ralston. You probably will remember the story as I relate it briefly. Aaron was hiking his way through a three-foot-wide section of Utah's Blue John Canyon. And without warning, before uh, he was able to get out of the way, a giant boulder weighing nearly 800 pounds shifted onto him, pinning his right arm in a crack in the canyon wall. He'd been stuck for four days when his water ran out. No rescue. On the sixth day, the 27-year-old mountain climber knew there was only one way he could survive. And so using a cheap pocket knife, he cut off his own arm. He made the cut below the elbow, applied a tourniquet, and then administered first aid from a kit in his backpack. Rigging anchors, he fixed a rope and rappelled 60 feet to the floor of the remote canyon near Canyonlands National Park in southeastern Utah. Ralston, an avid outdoors, outdoorsman, then began to hike back to his truck. Remember how long he'd been without the essentials. He encountered two tourists and had been walking for seven miles when a rescue helicopter spotted him, was flagged, and took him to hospital. Later on in the hosp hospital, there was a press conference. And what's really to the point of all of the things that I've been saying earlier was that when he was asked what it felt like to cut off his own arm, the reporters were absolutely stunned and shocked at his response. He said, quote, my self-amputation was a beautiful experience because it gave me my life back. He would have died in the canyon at 60 feet height and who knows how long it would have been before he would have been found. The question that I'm asking this morning to you and to me is what's pinning us? What do we need to extract ourselves from to get ourselves free of? 
what are you and I prepared to do to free ourselves from what threatens our present and our eternal life? There's so much to gain. There's so much to lose. We want to gain the kingdom. But let me suggest to you as we close that we also should be wanting to follow the king. The reason that Jesus calls us to such a strong response against physical and mental sexual unfaithfulness is that there is so much to be gained or lost in the choice. He says as much in the second part of verse 29 and also verse 30. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown or to go into hell. 1 Corinthians 6.10 makes it very clear that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation 22 and 15 says that the sexually immoral will not have access to the tree of life and will be barred from entering through the gates into the city of God. They will forever be outsiders. If there is so much to be lost, why would we fool ourselves? into thinking that it doesn't matter if we forgive ourselves patterns of indulgence in immoral, immoral thoughts and immoral pastimes so long as we don't actually act on them with someone else. The kingdom does not belong to skin-deep appearance. It belongs to soul deep character that resolves in all sorts of ways, both physical, emotional, and mental, to forsake all others, as many of us have said in our wedding vows, and cling to the one and only heart of our lives. The precedent and the inspiration for such faithfulness in marriage. J.B. Uh, Kachila wrote in Christianity Today is that Jesus, our sovereign, forsook all others for us. Every temptation he turned aside when Satan came in his 40 days of fasting and prayer. And he refused it all. He forsook it all. He would not be tempted away. He had a mission from the Heavenly Father. He had the church in his eye. He forsook his comfortable abode in the heavens, Kachila says, chose to limit himself to time, to space, to stomach pangs and social discomforts only so that we could experience the true love of the Heavenly Father the way God meant it to be. Saving, redeeming, freeing, intimate, and personal. Christ went through all the pain so that he could gain 
us. Far beyond any love story, Christ's love for all of us is the ultimate model of forsaking all others. Christ's love for all of us is the ultimate model of forsaking all others. Consider what the Bible tells us about his kind of love. The love that all husbands and all wives should learn to imitate. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Submit to one another, it says. So we're all submitting, not just some. And for husbands, Paul writes, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. My pastor says, we ought not to simply be thinking about the interest of our spouse for the next 80 years. We should be thinking about 80,000 or 80 million years. That's what we need to be thinking about. Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. And Hebrews 12 and verse 2 tells us that we should fix our eyes on Jesus who's gone before. He is the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The kingdom weighs in the balance. The king's pleasure is clear. Love your wife. Love your husband. They are and should always be the one and only forsaking all others and you can hear in the Old Testament God's pleasure when he says, be holy as I am holy. Amen.